welcome to Making Tech Better, MadeTech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. For us, that means empowering your teams to collaborate compassionately on creating high-quality software that delivers value quickly to the people that really matter, the users. My name is Claire Sudbury and my pronouns are she and her. I've been a software engineer for 21 years. I do a lot of speaking and writing on the topic of software delivery, and I'm a lead engineer with Made Tech. At Made Tech, we practice agile software development, and it's easy to forget that not everybody does. If people need convincing, that's a whole other episode, but I'll just say being agile means having the ability to change. And one strong technique that facilitates that flexibility is the retrospective. This is where teams get together on a regular basis, review working practices, think about what's going well, but also about what could be improved. Many, many people use them, but today I get to speak to I Know Corrie. She is the queen of retrospectives. She's the author of the book Retrospectives Anti-Patterns. And if you don't know what anti-patterns are, they are dysfunctional behavior patterns or bad habits. So it was fantastic to speak to Ino and learn how to get the absolute best from your retrospectives. Hello, Ino. Hello, Claire, and thank you very much for inviting me to this. I've been looking so much forward to it. Oh, brilliant. I love to hear that. It's wonderful to have you here. So I know Corrie is author of the book Retrospectives Anti-Patterns, which loads of people have been telling me about and, and raving about. So I was really keen to speak to I know. And she also asked me when I was introducing her to say that as well as being the author of the book Retrospectives Anti-Patterns, she is also the owner of a growing collection of plush cephalopods. Exactly. I know. <laughs> what is a cephalopod? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fancy name for an octopus, but it's a. Uh, I just really like octopuses as a species, and uh, and and when you get plush cephalopods, they're they're normally very cute, <laughs> so, and, and easier and easier to take care of than it, if it was a live one. They are amazing, though, aren't they? Yes. When you see videos of what they can do, they can squeeze themselves into teeny tiny spaces and through tiny gaps, yeah. and they can do things like open screw lids on jars. Yeah. They're really impressive. I think the most impressive thing about them is their brains, Mm -hmm. which work so much different than ours. Yes. So in the beginning, when people started looking at them, they thought they were really stupid animals, but they're not. Mm Mm-hmm. They can learn all sorts of things. Really amazing. Yeah, yeah, but their brains don't work the same way. They don't look the same, do they, if you stick them under a microscope? No, exactly. And that's why they thought they were stupid, because they just looked at the brain mass, which is a very poor way of measuring IQ, I would say, because my head is extremely small. So I think that's a very poor way of measuring it. And they have senses throughout their tentacles, don't they? Exactly. And they very much kind of experience the world through their tentacles. Yeah, and not just that, they actually have pieces of their brains in the tentacles. Ah, yeah. Which is actually why there's an octopus as the ongoing illustration in my book, because you can see the octopus as being made up of of eight separate brains Mm. with one brain uniting them in the head. And it's a little bit like a team. They have all their brains, but then they have to work together like one organism. And I think that really sort of gets the gist of retrospectives where you want to look at how you can improve the teamwork and how you can improve the team cooperation and communication 
And you can't really separate one tentacle from the rest of the octopus. Yeah. So I like that sort of picture. That's really interesting because that idea of a team as an organism where all of the parts are separate, but also learning from one another and creating this larger organism. It also came up when I was talking to Jessica Kerr recently about somatheses and, and learning teams. Yeah, I could imagine. So there you go. That's a plug for another episode of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. So let's talk about the book because I'm really interested to talk to you about it. But before we do, the first question I want to ask you is who in this industry are you inspired by? If I should name only one, it would have to be Linda Rising. Mm. Because she was the one who gave the talk that many years ago in Denmark about retrospectives when I didn't know anything about retrospectives. And she was the one who gave me the book by Norm Kurth, Project Retrospectives. And she was also the one who were one of the opposers in my PhD defense because I made a PhD about patterns. Mm -hmm. So she's sort of been a voice throughout my entire life after university and also a little bit during university. And I really am impressed by all the things that she reads and understands and not the least the way that she can communicate it mm -hmm. to everybody else. Mm. So you say she gave you that book. I um, went to a Q&A with Linda Rising at an Agile conference in uh, San Diego a couple of years ago. And she had brought a ton of books with her and she gave them away to people in the audience. I can't remember exactly how it was constructed. I think it was that anybody who came up and asked her a question got to choose a book and take it away with them. She obviously likes giving books to people. Yeah. So, so the reason why I got the book was because she asked if there is anybody in the audience who did not know anything about retrospectives, and I was the only one who raised my hand. Mm. And then she said that I could get the book. Fantastic. I was also the one who needed it the most, I guess, if I didn't know anything about it. Ah, perfect then. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's talk about the book. And um, In your book, you say that you've always been fascinated by the thought of helping people and teams reflect and learn. So would you say that describes your role in this industry? Is, is that what you do? Very much so. I have my own consultancy, which is called Meta Developer, because I'm not a developer anymore, but I'm developing developers, so I'm Meta Developer. Mm -hmm. And what I do most of the time is that I try to help teams communicate with retrospectives, but also in all other aspects of, of software development. It could be when they have to plan some work, when they have to make a demo to customers, uh, when they need to have some ideation, or when they have to start a new team and they have some sort of liftoff. So I, I definitely do that all the time. And I, I think that I think I help a team in one way or the other, like five to 10 times a week. Mm. And so that has become your job. Yes. And is that are you happy? Is this is this all your dreams come true? Is this what you always wanted? Well, I never really knew what I always wanted. I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Mm -hmm. But I've I've always wanted to be a teacher. That I know. And I think that being a teacher for me is helping people understand what they need to understand. And I think it's sort of the same thing going on now when I'm helping teams communicate and helping architects communicate with other developers and helping developers communicate with customers and helping stakeholders communicate with the users and everything like that. I think it's the same thing that I'm really keen on trying to make people understand their environment, because in my experience, Understanding gives you happiness. Mm. 
I empathize with that so strongly because uh, I feel very similarly. I love to teach. I love to help teams. And I'm really, really keen on communication and really hyper aware of communication. So I'm always aware of ambiguity. I'm always trying to remove ambiguity. I'm always noticing when two people or two groups of people think that they're communicating, but I'm not convinced that they are. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I want to try and smooth that process out. Um, but for me, that does mean, I think, that sometimes I over communicate because I'm so keen for everything to be very clear and very clearly understood. The frustrating thing that I've learned, but I still have to keep reminding myself, is that if you try too hard to make everything very clear, then what you're actually doing is bombarding people with information. Mm. You reach a peak of a curve and you go over the other side mm. so that actually you're, you're no longer communicating because you've tried so hard that you're just people are being bombarded with information and they can't, they can't take it all in. Yeah, that's a bit like cognitive load in uh, teaching research. So, for instance, if you're giving a lecture to some students, you might think, or I know some teachers think, that the more information they can sort of get across the table, the better, the more the students will learn. But there's a curve there. Mm. And, of course, if you don't tell them anything, they don't learn anything. But there's a sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And when you reach that peak, that sweet spot, if you continue talking, if you continue introducing new concepts then actually what they already learned will deteriorate. Mm. So you'll go downhill again afterwards. And that's mm. the cognitive load theory, which is really important. Yeah, I was briefly a high school teacher and I was still learning that lesson of how to communicate efficiently and effectively, mm -hmm. not give too much information. And somebody once said to me that, that somebody, I think it was somebody who taught public speaking. And they said that when people did their workshops, they could always tell the ex-teachers because they were always really efficient at transmitting information. They wouldn't say too much. Mm. They would say just enough to get their message across yeah. and then know when to stop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your book, Retrospectives Anti-Patterns, is about anti-patterns that you have seen in retrospectives and how people can avoid them. Yes. But what is your elevator pitch in favour of retrospectives? Every team should take the chance to reflect from time to time. And they need to do that to share, to appreciate and to learn, to become a better team. Mm -hmm. It's like that book by Diana Larson and Esther Derby about agile retrospectives, making good teams great. So even a good team can, can improve with retrospectives. If you want to add on to that, what I normally do when I'm talking to a team that says, we can't get any better, we're brilliant as we are, we don't need a retrospective. And I'm saying that even people who are professional skiers, they still try to learn more about how to ski better. Even though they've won gold medal in the last Olympics, they will still try to improve how they ski. Maybe with the muscle training, maybe with their sleep, maybe with what they eat, maybe with how they train. You can always become better. Yes, I love that. Yeah. And you said that you, on your own journey in learning about retrospectives, you realize that good retrospective facilitation is not just about knowing which activities to use, that there's more to it than that. So what is that extra magic beyond just knowing what activities to use that really makes the difference when you're facilitating retrospectives? Well, luckily it's not magic. <laughs> it can be learned by anybody. The reason why I said that about it's not just about knowing a lot of activities is that I remember in the beginning when I was facilitating retrospectives that sometimes people would say, oh, we use the team radar. Oh, you don't know what the team radar is. And then I felt so 
uh, embarrassed that I didn't know that. Oh, you don't know the six thinking hats. No, I don't know that either. Mm. But I was still a pretty good facilitator. And I think that when I started reflecting on how how retrospectives work and, and also how they don't work in the book, what I noticed is that it's a lot more about being able to listen, actually actively listening to people without thinking about how you should answer. Mm-hmm. So that you know when they are saying the same thing again, they're actually saying this is very important to me and I can't move on unless we've had some sort of ending on this. Ah. But also the body language um And it's more difficult now when it's online, we can get back to that. Mm. But looking at the body language of the people in the room, I think that's really important as well. That I spend a lot of time studying body language, not just in books, but also in actual people, to the extent that when I go to a restaurant, I I look at all the other people instead of the people I'm with, because I I find it so fascinating to see, oh, so he is talking to her, but his legs have turned towards somebody else. Okay, so that's where his focus is, really. <laughs> but I think also the preparation of a retrospective is, is crucial and something that some people sometimes forget. They just think, okay, let's mean, let's talk about what went well, what didn't go well, and what can we do better next time. But I think preparation is important. Look at the action points from last time. Be sure that you have them there. Be sure that you have a list of all the people who are there for numerous reasons. And um, be sure that you've made a plan for how to go through the five phases of a retrospective. Setting the stage, gathering data, generating insights, deciding what to do and ending the retrospective. And sometimes you need to have an extra plan, a plan B, so that you can yank in something like the soup exercise or or something like that. if If you see that this is going in a weird direction. And I think the preparation means that you don't need to know all the activities by heart. You can just find them while you're preparing. Yeah, that's interesting. So the thing that I particularly noticed there is you're talking about a plan B, because I had facilitated a few retros where I, uh, I'd i got the idea from other people that I'd observed that I would always start with a safety check. Mm-hmm. And I would ask people to give a score of how comfortable they felt about sharing information and talking openly about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And there was one retro that I facilitated where one person gave quite a low score. Mm. And I continued with the retro. But I remember thinking, I don't actually know what I'm supposed to do about this. No. Like if somebody said that they don't feel comfortable or confident participating, then then I'm, I don't, maybe I shouldn't actually be doing this and speaking to other people. Well, actually, no, I'm not going to tell you the advice I got. I'm going to ask you, what would your advice be in, in that situation? <laughs> My advice in that situation would definitely be that you, you would either stop the retrospective or you will try to spend time to figure out how can we make people feel more safe in this retrospective. And of course, that depends on the culture of the people, how well you know them. Sometimes it's it's with a team that you know well and you know that you can have another exercise where you can ask them what could make you feel more safe. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if it's people that you meet for the first time and you see somebody is just completely unsafe, you could actually just say, I think we should do this retrospective another day and then we'll try to work on it on one-on-one meetings in between. Because if somebody feels that unsafe at a retrospective, that person will not be able to make the best of the retrospective because it's about sharing and sometimes sharing things that you're afraid of sharing. Yeah. So the safety is really crucial. Yeah. But also if if one person is not feeling safe, then there's probably something in the culture of the team Mm. that needs to be fixed. And perhaps 
only one person said that because the others are actually too unsafe to even say that they're unsafe, if you know what I mean. Mm. So it would depend. And that's the um, consultant's answer. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> but definitely spending time on it, not just moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Because I was going to say, if somebody feels unsafe, then they might also feel unsafe about having a conversation about why they're unsafe. Exactly. <laughs> so you can't necessarily address it there and then. No. And I think something that I have to confess when it happened to me, because it was a small team and I was the, the, the tech lead in that team and I was facilitating the retro and I, you know, facilitated quite a lot of ceremonies and things generally within the team. I kind of felt personally upset mm-hmm. and almost hurt you know that but but I think that I'm so nice and mm-hmm. nurturing and I think I create this really positive environment and surely you cut how how can you feel unsafe yes and you have to be aware of that yeah. because you have to be able to take a step back and look at it objectively and say look for whatever reason somebody feels unsafe and if I take that personally, then I make it be about me, yeah. which is going to make it even harder for them to open up and explain why they feel unsafe. It's not about me. But it's not easy, I think. Yeah. And it's definitely taken me many years of facilitation to to understand that I should not take these things personally. It's not about me. Mm-hmm. If something thinks this is a terrible retrospective, it's probably not, at least not just about me. If somebody feels unsafe, it's not just about me. I mean, it could have been something I've done. But most likely it was there already before I came, before I even entered the room. Mm. But that is something that is that is difficult for a facilitator because you feel like it's your responsibility. Yeah, I do also think, though, that particularly if you're in a position of leadership, it's easy to underestimate how much power you have, mm-hmm. um, that you can think that you're being ever so open and nurturing and approachable. But no matter what you do, other people are going to see you potentially as having power and, and influence that you don't even realize you have. And that can make people feel insecure. And you have to be aware of that and not not ignore it. Definitely. But yeah, anyway, okay. So you talked about body language. Obviously, that has become much harder now that we're all working remotely. So do you have any tips for getting over that? Because I've really noticed meetings are harder. Meeting with large numbers of people are harder because it's much harder for me to read the room, for me to see people's body language, for me to read all of those nonverbal cues that I don't even know that I'm reading. It's not even conscious. This is just a skill that we all learn because we're human and we don't even know we're using it. It's it's really difficult. Um, I think that the first thing also that a lot of other people are saying is hide your own video view. Don't don't look at yourself because mm. if you are there yourself, your eyes will turn towards you to see if you're looking stupid or fat right now. Mm-hmm. At least most people have that problem. So so take that out of the equation. That already makes things easier. But it is a problem. And it is especially a problem if people don't want to be on video while you have these mm. retrospectives with them. Mm. So what I do normally is that I, I have my document that I always have with the retrospective where we share things and we write things and we vote on things. And then I have a different screen where I have all the pictures of people, so all the video pictures. Mm. And I try to look at the video pictures when somebody is saying something. And sometimes you can see that they're sort of rolling to their eyes without really doing it, but sort of sighing a little bit. You can see, oh, not that again. Mm-hmm. Or you can see that they're eager. They're almost like crawling into the camera because they need to say something. Yeah. Or you can perhaps see that they're doing something else. And it's just very difficult if people don't want to show their face on video. And there can be various reasons for people not wanting to show their face on video. It can be a cultural thing. It can be a psychological thing. But I think that 
as with many other things, you should try to figure out, okay, so what's the cause and what's the symptom here? So the symptom that you see is that they're not on video, but what is causing this? Is it because they really feel bad about making people look at their video? Is it because they feel bad about what it looks like in their homes? Is it because their partner is going behind them in the nude or what is it? <laughs> or is it because they want to take this retrospective from the car or from a coffee shop? Because if it's because they want to take it from the car, then it's it's a symptom of a course that is that they don't take it seriously. And I think that if somebody continuously is not showing themselves on video, even if you're trying to lure them out with games, then you should take a one on one conversation with them and explain to them that it's not just for fun. We want to see you. It's because it's part of my job is is it's crucial so that I can see how you react to what other people are saying. And I can see what you're looking like when you're saying things. Mm -hmm. And of course, you can always just start with the suite, just saying, okay, so everybody find something blue from their office and show it on the camera, because that will sort of make people turn their camera on because they have to show this blue thing. And once they've had the camera on, it's easier to stay on the camera. That's a nice little trick. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice little trick. But you should also, if, if somebody suddenly turns on their camera, you shouldn't say, oh, how wonderful you turned out your camera. Lovely to see you. <laughs> I, I fall in that trap still, even though I think it's a bad mm. idea. But normally when they don't want to be on video, it's because they don't want all that attention. So giving it a lot of attention when they finally go on video is really an anti-pattern as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that part of the problem as well is that for some tools, if you don't want to look at yourself, the easiest way to do that is to just turn your video off. Mm. So some of them, you're either on and you're having to look at yourself. And the only way to not look at yourself is to just turn your video off for everybody. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, the only reason they're doing it is because they don't want to look at themselves. Yeah. And that can be interesting to learn because then you can say, well, you can put a post-it note on your camera and then you can take it away when you're talking. Mm. Right. So that it's only when you're talking that you show yourself and the rest of the time you don't have to. Yeah. That could just be sort of easing, easing them into it. But I think most things maybe have a height self view now. In the beginning, I... I would move another window over my face, like I've done in this interview, actually. I have another window over my face because I didn't know how to hide my self-view, so I just hid it on my own screen. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm pretty choosy about who I'll work for, but there's lots to love about Made Tech. We're software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. There's a real passion to make a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. And if you go to madetech.com slash resources slash books, you'll find that we have a couple of free books available, Modernizing Legacy Applications in the Public Sector and Building High-Performance Agile Teams. We're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the North of England via our Manchester office. You can find out more about that if you go to madetech.com slash careers. If you join our mailing list, you'll get extra podcast content as well as finding out more about Made Tech. You'll find a link in the description. Before we return to Ino's interview, just a quick recap of what we were talking about before the break. 
We were talking about facilitating retrospectives remotely and how it's a good idea to make sure that everybody is visible so that you can pay attention to body language. Have you had to facilitate a lot of retros remotely? I'm guessing you have. Oh, yes, yes. Are there there any other little kind of tips and tricks for making retros work when they're remote? It goes back to the um, preparation again, I would say, definitely. Because if it's in real life retrospective, then you can just draw the three circles to the soup or you can make a team radar or you can um, give them some more post-it notes or something like that. But if it's online, you have to have prepared this document. So you have to make the agenda, prepare the document, and then you have to remind them the day before, send them an email saying, this is the link to the document. Please make sure you can access the document. And then sometimes if you have the energy, send an email 15 minutes before the retrospective just to say, remember to take a bio break and get some coffee before the retrospective. So just warning them a little bit in advance um, about the fact that their that the bodies need, need, need help yeah. from time to time. That's one of the things that I have found hardest because I was full of good intentions at the start of lockdown. I I could see straight away that it was going to be really intense sitting in back-to-back meetings and that therefore I should make sure that none of my meetings filled the slots that they were in. So Mm. if it's a 30-minute slot, make it a 25 or a 20-minute meeting, a 50-minute meetings in hour-long slots, give people opportunities to have breaks between meetings. But somehow it just, you know, suddenly I look at my calendar and yet again, there are back-to-back meetings with no breaks. Or the other thing that happens, particularly with somebody like me who loves to talk, is I will schedule a 20-minute meeting into a 30-minute slot. And then at the end, I'm like, oh, we've got some spare time. Let's carry on talking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so nice. (laughs) And we don't have that physicality and geography of moving Mm. from one room to the other which we have in real life. Yeah, my body's really noticed the difference because it's the nature of my job. It has been for a while now that I am. I do attend lots of meetings. Mm. And that was a good thing when I was in an office because it forced me to move away from a, a desk and move away from a computer. And yeah. I have arthritis in my shoulders. And mm. there are lots of reasons why I shouldn't stay sitting for long periods of time. And it used to be that meetings made sure that I didn't. And now the yeah. opposite is true. Now it's the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think probably any of us who've ever worked with software teams and facilitated retrospectives or attended retrospectives would have come across the the reluctant retrospective attendee. And, you know, the archetype is the programmer who doesn't want to be dragged away from their code, who feels like time is being wasted and they just want to be left alone. And also, you know, there are people and I, I am sometimes one of those people who just doesn't want to be in a room with people. They just want to talk to a computer, you Mm. know, and that can be draining. Interacting with other people, social interaction can be really draining. And so they are reluctant to attend retrospectives and they don't always see the value. Mm. But you say in your book that you take great pleasure in showing (laughs) sceptical software engineers who just want to be left alone to code what they can gain from communicating. So how do you win those people round? Well, I have to say first that there are two people in my past that, I was not able to win around, mm. and I will never forget those two. Those two that got away. You've never forgotten, have you? <laughs> <laughs> never forget them. But that being said, it's true that I really I like a good challenge, and uh, being a retrospective facilitator in IT will give you that challenge from time to time. And I think that one of the things you said was very important was the value, mm. because the the reason why they don't want to spend time on it is is because they don't think they get enough value out of it as opposed to 
the value that they lose when they do it, right? The value of doing the work, the programming, or the value of being left alone without any other people. So it's important that you show them that there is value in the retrospective. Mm-hmm. There are several ways to go about this. One of the things that I think is important is to make sure when you have them in a retrospective to be absolutely precise about why you are doing the different activities. Mm-hmm. So if you just have a lot of activities in the beginning, like, for instance, asking the team, could you describe the last sprint as a weather forecast? I probably wouldn't do that with people like that. I would probably ask a more serious adult question, <laughs> like, uh, what did you take too seriously in the last sprint? Or what is the success that you experienced in the last sprint? And was anybody other in the team working on that success story? Something like that. And then explain to them that the reason why we have this check-in question is A, because I really want you to to focus on what we're doing right now. Because when you go from meeting to meeting, you have this brain residue that comes along from the last meeting. Or perhaps you were writing code and you have that brain residue. You were in the flow, you're thinking about the architecture. And to sort of flush that out of the brain, I asked them a question that they have to answer, which is focused on reflecting on the team or reflecting on the sprint. But also that when everybody said something, it's easier for them to say something afterwards. The activation phenomenon from psychology is that if they're left alone without having to say anything, it's much easier for them to stay quiet all the time. And then I would say the third reason for doing this is that I want you to know something about each other. And that is the way that we build trust between team members. And trust between team members is one of the most important things to have so that you can work together efficiently as a team. Because then you can ask questions, then you can say I'm stuck, then you can help each other. So building trust is important and getting a relation to other people, knowing how they saw that sprint. Or perhaps later, knowing what they had for breakfast or what they're looking forward to or where they're going on vacation is important to create that relation that gives you the trust within the team. So saying why you're doing the activities and afterwards debriefing what you got out of it is really important and making sure that the action points are really measurable and really attainable. And then at the next retrospective, be sure that you look at the status of these experiments or action points so that they can see, okay, we actually got something out of it. But there are so many ways of thinking about that. Also, sometimes when people are really tired about retrospectives, I don't even call it a retrospective. I go out and ask them, what problems do you have? Or find out what problems they have. And I say, I have a structured way of trying to find the causes behind that problem. Mm. And then I just use all the activities from a retrospective to make the course analysis, to generate insights, to decide what to do so that they can create an experiment. That's great. Oh, my God. That's like you've just spent five minutes and you've said so many useful things. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That was fantastic. I love the thing about getting people to participate in order to clear out the brain residue, because I've definitely done that. I've been in meetings where my brain is still full of whatever code that I was just interrupted from. Yeah. And I'm not I'm only half there. And I think that the common strategy in in retrospectives and similar meetings is for us to ask people to silently contribute by writing on post-its, virtual post-its or filling in Trello cards or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy in that circumstance for somebody to not contribute and for their head to still be full of the brain residue. So asking people to actually speak Mm. is a really interesting tactic. I really like that. Okay. So you said in your book that retros can be easily ruined. Yes. Do you have any stories? Give me one story of how you can ruin a retro. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, well, there are many ways a facilitator can ruin a retrospective. So I'm just going to name one from the facilitator and one from the attendees. Okay. One way a facilitator can ruin a retrospective is by, instead of facilitating, interrupting people and saying, no, that actually didn't happen like that, or, oh, maybe you should try this. I tried this and this worked really well for me because the retrospective is about the team sharing Mm -hmm. and the team figuring out themselves what to do. If you want to come up with a lot of good advice or tell about your problems, then you should do that outside the retrospective. As an attendee, a way that you can ruin a retrospective is, of course, to not play along or to even play against it. Doing the same, interrupting or not sharing anything or not voting or laughing when other people are saying something. Yeah. It goes a bit back to asking people, what can you do to make this a good retrospective for everybody and how can you ruin this retrospective? Because when you do that, you're not only saying what you could do to ruin it, but you're also saying, in a subtle way, how other people can ruin it for you. Mm, Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So what would be the top retrospective anti-pattern that you haven't mentioned yet that you would love people to learn how to handle, spot and fix? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How much time do we have? (laughs) We're actually, we've got five minutes left, so. (laughs) Right, so my top three retrospective anti-patterns, prime directive ignorance, where you, as a facilitator, ignore the prime directive from Norm Kurth that says everybody did the best they could and you ignore it because you think people will think it's ridiculous. Mm. And then if you ignore it, then perhaps there will be some blaming and scapegoating. The second one is the Wheel of Fortune, because the Wheel of Fortune says that if you go directly from gathering data to deciding what to do and you skip the generating insights, then you might start solving the symptoms and not the problems. So, for instance, you might start saying if if people say, oh, we want less meetings, okay, we'll just cut away half of the meetings. But if you spend some time finding the causes generating insights, maybe you found out that it's because the meetings are really badly led or there's no agenda or we're never deciding anything. So it's not really because they've got too many meetings. It's because they've got lousy meetings. Mm. And that's why it's called Wheel of Fortune, because it's like spinning a Wheel of Fortune. And sometimes you solve the problem, but sometimes you're just solving the symptom and the problem is still there. Mm-hmm. And the last one is called In the Soup, where sometimes there's something that the team can't do anything about. It's out of their circle of influence, but they continue to talk about it. And they continue to spend a lot of time talking about it in each retrospective instead of just trying to figure out, okay, what can we actually do something about? What is it that we can influence and what is out of our influence? Because the things that are out of our influence or in the soup, we can just adapt to them or learn to live with them. So those, I think, are my top three retrospective anti-patterns. Brilliant. Brilliant. That was really useful. Thank you. Okay, so we are running out of time. So I'm going to ask you to tell me one thing that's true and one thing that is untrue about you. uh, And then we're going to play the mean trick on our listeners of not telling them which one it is. (laughs) (laughs) If they subscribe to our mailing list, then they'll find out the answer. So tell me one thing that's true and one thing that's not true, but, but don't say which is which. Okay. I have a coffee mug that used to belong to Steve Jobs. Oh. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I go to a lot of conferences, so I know a lot of speakers, and and many of them have worked with Steve Jobs. So, so wait, no, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. So you said you go to a lot of conferences. I thought you were going to say that you spotted Steve Jobs. You spotted he had a mug, and when he wasn't looking, <laughs> you snatched it. That would have been bad enough. But now you seem to be suggesting that there are people going around stealing Steve Jobs mugs and then taking them with them as loot to conferences. Using them as bartering chips. I mean, how did this come about? Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> so, did they offer it to you as a prize? Why did they give it to you? Mm, I think if I say too many details here, it's um, it's going to be difficult to figure out which is true and which is not true, isn't it? Oh, okay, okay. So, what's the other thing that may or may not be true? It may or may not be true that I started running half marathons when I turned 40 because I got a birthday gift that was a registration for a half marathon. Oh, my gosh. And how far had you run before then? 10 kilometres. Ah, okay. And I only know marathons in miles. So 13 miles is more kilometres, isn't it? Yes. How many kilometres is a half marathon? 21.7, I think. Oh, so twice as far as you'd ever run before. Yes. Well, just because somebody gave you a voucher. Yes. Okay. So to end on a high, what is the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so, either work-related or non-work-related? I think the best thing that happened to me was that I turned 50. Well done. Yes. (laughs) It's well done, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the alternative is not very good. Well, yes. Uh, (laughs) And I, even though there was corona... I have been celebrated, but in small bursts with family and friends. So going for a walk with a bottle of champagne or sitting in the park with some delicious food or everybody getting tested negative and then having a meal together. And so it's it's been a weird way of celebrating, but it's actually been really nice. Ah. That is nice. I'm 51 and proud. Yeah. So <laughs> welcome to the to the club. Thank you. <laughs> I like to see it as an achievement rather than anything to be worried or, or, or embarrassed about. I think it is an achievement. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's money in the bank. It's wisdom. It's, you know, the older you are, the more fascinating experiences you have behind you. Definitely. And the more, I mean, I I like myself more every year. Oh, that's lovely. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. So where can people find you? And do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? Well, the only thing that I'd like to plug at the moment is my book. Absolutely. (laughs) Retrospectives Anti-Patterns by I Know Corrie. And I have a website called metadeveloper.com where you can find me or you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. And also just Googling my name, I Know Corrie, because nobody else has that name in the world. Fantastic. I'm pretty sure that nobody has my name either, but it's slightly less exciting. People do have my name, they just spell it wrong. Nobody has my (laughs) name and spells it like me. (laughs) But it does mean that I get to use my full name as a username uh, and I get to have domains and and accounts and things that always use my name with no extra numbers or any other tricks added in because nobody spells their name like me. But then, of course, that relies on people being able to spell my name in order to find me. True, true. I'm sure that it gets spelt wrongly if you don't tell them what to do. Oh, totally. Yes. No, people never know. Yeah. So this is my chance to tell everybody. Claire has no I in it. And Sudbury is spelt the same way as surgery or carvery with an E-R-Y on the end. Just 
think of knives and you'll get there. <laughs> oh, well, it's been so much fun to speak to you, I know. Likewise. And uh, it, it seems like your coffee did the job. Yes. We managed to get you laughing a few times. Yes, so. definitely. <laughs> the coffee and the chocolate and you. Oh, wonderful. As always, I'm going to help you digest what you've just heard by summarising it. Even Olympic athletes strive to improve, so it's always worth thinking about whether you're getting the best from your retrospectives. Take psychological safety seriously. What can help with this is for retrospective facilitators to stay impartial. Don't take issues personally. When working remotely, encourage people to be visible so that you can observe their body language and do your preparation and encourage others to do the same. If your team are reluctant or sceptical, be sensitive to their bugbears. Discuss and demonstrate the purpose and the value of the retrospective. Have a debrief at the end. Make action points measurable and attainable and emphasise trust building. Also, encourage active participation right from the beginning to clear out the brain residue. Facilitators can ruin retrospectives by contradicting people's stories or by focusing too much on their own advice and experience. And attendees can ruin retrospectives by not participating or poking fun. One thing that you can do is to ask attendees how they believe they could make it better and also how could they ruin it. I know's top three anti-patterns are prime directive ignorance, which can lead to blaming and scapegoating, in the soup, which is where you get bogged down on things you can't control, and the Wheel of Fortune, which is where people move straight from gathering data to deciding what to do and skip the process of generating insights, which can mean they end up solving symptoms instead of problems. If you want to know more about all of this, then please do look up I Know Corrie and her book. There'll be links in the description. But the episode's not over yet. Stick around for more content. Every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to Hack of the Month, where one of my colleagues and in the future our listeners too will share a life or a work hack. So this time we have Kirsty Rhodes, who's our Business Development Director at Made Tech, and she's going to speak to us about dealing with stressful life events. Hi, Claire. So one of the life tips that I've recently given myself, and it's something that I came across when I lost my dad when I was about 23, um, through surviving the grief involved in that was to just take each day at a time. There is only so much you can do in a day. And that helped me to when things got overwhelming. And it's something that allows me to relive my dad's in my today life and keep his memory alive because it was around 15 years ago that, that that happened and we lost him quite suddenly and so whenever I do get overwhelmed with uh, with things whether it be family life or work whether it be a big target if I've been given a big target that I need to achieve in a, in a 12 month period I do strip it back and say, right, come on, Kirsty, you just take each day at a time. Don't get too overwhelmed. And I think even now, you know, when you when you hormonal and your blood sugar's low and you get overwhelmed with homeschooling, obviously everything that's going on in the pandemic and you can't kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Just that advice that I've taught myself from my dad's grief helps me to get through some of the challenges 15 years on today. Working in the 
public sector means that at MedTech we really care about making a difference. So for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing suggestions for small things we can do to make the world a better place. This one is simple, get more sleep. Most people don't get enough sleep. Sometimes it's because they don't prioritise it. For a lot of people, it's not a choice. But why will more sleep make the world a better place? Now, I have to be careful here because once I get started talking about sleep, it's hard for me to stop. I've recently read Why We Sleep, a book by Matthew Walker, and I really, really want to interview him. So if anybody knows him and can put me in touch, please do. And what I've learnt is that sleep is really, really good for your mental and physical health. It's also good for everyone else, because when you're well slept, you have more empathy. You have better emotional control. You'll tend to treat your colleagues better and your loved ones. And you'll do better work. And you're less likely to kill someone on the road. An awful lot of road traffic accidents and deaths are directly related to lack of sleep. If you're a medical professional, you're less likely to kill one of your patients or clients. And it helps the immune system, which is obviously really relevant right now because good sleep the night before a vaccine makes immunization significantly, measurably more effective. Yes, I know, more sleep means fewer hours awake, which means you'll get less done, right? That's what I thought. But no, since I've been getting more sleep, I've got more energy, I'm more effective, I'm more productive in less time. I know that for many people, good sleep is not a choice. So is there anything that you can do to improve that choice for others? For instance, don't praise people for working long hours. Don't expect them to work long hours. Don't force people who are naturally owls to attend early morning meetings. And don't force larks to stay late. If you have trouble with sleep, I highly recommend the book Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. There are lots of recommendations in there for how to improve your sleep. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash sleep dash Claire dash notes, that's Claire with no I, then you'll find my summary of Matthew's recommendations. And that's the end of another episode. You can find me on Twitter at Claire Sudbury, which might not be spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire, and Sudbury is spelt the same way as surgery, with E-R-Y at the end. I've got a few talks coming up. If you look at the events page on my Medium blog, which is linked to from my Twitter profile, you'll find all the details there. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Making Tech Bet 2. That's making T-E-C-H B-E-T-T-2. Do come and say hello. Give us your feedback. Give us any contributions you have for future episodes or just have a chat with us. Thank you to Rose for editing and thank you to Richard Murray for the music. You'll find a link in the description. Also in the description is a link for subscribing for extra content. We'll be releasing new episodes every fortnight. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.